I want to start with a couple of verses this morning that uh, were on my mind and heart as I was driving up. They're not on the screen, but I just want to read them <clears throat> for you. One of them is from 1 Corinthians 15. And, you know, we're talking about uh, the last few weeks about the tribulation period and the time of God's judgment and that final seven-year period just prior to the return of Christ to establish His earthly kingdom. Uh, and we have not talked, at least not for a while in this series, about the rapture. We are going to come back to that again and, and revisit it and talk a little bit more detail about it. Uh, according to Scripture, the rapture occurs prior to the start of Daniel's 70th week. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that Daniel's 70th week refers to that seven-year period just prior to the return of Christ uh, that we were talking about. We looked at all of the Old Testament designations of it. We're in the middle uh, currently of looking at some New Testament passages that talk about that seven-year period. Uh, but the rapture is a special blessing for the church, the bride of Christ, and uh, we are promised that we will not be on earth during the outpouring of the wrath of God and that great day of the Lord's wrath. Um, but this passage that uh, I'd like to share as we start uh, this morning is about the rapture, and it's from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, what's a mystery? You should know that from all of our studies. A mystery is previously undisclosed revelation. So new information from the mind of God to the hearts of men through the pen of the human authors that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is some new, something new. And uh, he says... This mystery, which he had already revealed, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, Jesus had touched on it in the upper room in John 14. So it's a mystery in the sense that it was not revealed in the Old Testament, but it's now being revealed in the New Testament uh, word. But what is this mystery? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, sleep being a euphemism for death, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Now there's so much there that we could uh, talk about, but the thing that caught my eye was this, this notion of the, the immediacy of it, the instantaneous nature of the rapture in the twinkling of an eye, literally the blink of an eye, we shall be changed. You know, we're studying on Wednesday nights, uh, what in the world is going on is what we're calling it. We're looking at a lot of the setting of the stage and things that are happening as this world rapidly uh, hurdles towards the end game of the Luciferian agenda and the end times of God's agenda. And be, sometimes I think we can get so focused on all of the signs of the times that we forget when it does happen, when the church is raptured to meet the Lord in the air, it's going to happen like that. We won't see it coming necessarily. We will be just going about our day, and on the next thing you know, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Amen. And that event will start the clock ticking on God's end times program. And all of the things that we've been talking about uh, will fall in line right after that event. And so uh, we look forward to that. You know, Jeff, in his email this week that he sent to the worship band, uh, talked about Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and how, how we really... 
can't wait for that. And the Bible ends. The last two verses in the Bible talk about the soon coming of our Lord. And we sure look forward to that now more than, than ever before. And notice how it also mentioned uh, there in verse uh, 53, uh, the dead will be raised incorruptible. Now, you know, when our body, when we die, our body goes to the grave or perhaps is cremated or lost at sea or burned up in a fire, whatever happens to the physical atoms of our flesh, blood, bones, all that. But it, it, uh, it decays over time. And uh, over time, eventually it decays so much that there's nothing left but indistinguishable atoms, at least to the human eye. And that's what he's talking about here is that at the rapture, those believers who know the Lord and died during this present age, their physical bodies will be reconstituted. They'll put on immortality. They'll be given a glorified body that is outside of time, space, and matter and not subject to corruption the way our physical bodies are. And uh, that's something else to look forward to. You know, we just uh, were at a funeral this uh, Friday uh, of my mother-in-law and seeing her uh, body in the casket, uh, it was just an empty tent, you know. It didn't, it didn't even look like her. Um, and, you know, I tried to explain that to my younger, uh, my youngest daughter and just making sure that, it was a, that she understood. I mean, we, she knew, but just wanted to kind of bear that point home. And, um, and now it's in the grave. And we had the graveside service after the funeral. And, and over, if the Lord tarries is coming over time, it's going to decay. But someday, that body that was suffering in so much pain in the time right before she went to be with Jesus uh, will be reconstituted, and she'll have a perfect body, as we all will. So that's just something to remember, is that as we study the end times, let's not forget that our study of the end times might be preempted any moment by the opportunity to meet the Lord in the air, and the fulfillment of prophecy begins to take shape. And then in Proverbs 15, uh, proverb for the day here, uh, I thought this was appropriate for what we're studying uh, this morning. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. <clears throat> you know, sometimes it seems like uh, evil is going unchecked, <clears throat> unrestrained. There's so many bad things happening, and, and it seems like we wonder sometimes, is the Lord paying attention? Well, Proverbs tells us he's paying attention, and many other passages as well. But he's keeping his eye on the evil and the good, and in his time, in his way, he will make sure that uh, vengeance is, uh, is given. So uh, we are studying, uh, obviously, what lies ahead, but specifically we're studying the tribulation. <clears throat> and uh, this is our third week to talk about uh, the tribulation. For those of you that uh, don't already have the book, there are copies uh, on the back table. Feel free to help yourself. Uh, those of you online can go to notbyworks.org and pick it up. But we're in chapters 12 and 14, talking about some of the events that take place during this uh, tribulation period. And we talked about how, <clears throat> looking at a sort of a rudimentary chart that by no means has all of the events that are yet to be fulfilled in God's plan of the ages, but has the key markers there that you see on the screen. Uh, we are in this period of time right here that's highlighted in yellow, that seven-year tribulation period. Uh, again, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great day of the Lord's wrath. It begins <clears throat> with the 
uh, signing of the peace treaty uh, there in Daniel 9.27 when the Antichrist uh, takes the, the helm of the world government. And it lasts for seven years until the return of Christ. According to Revelation 19, when Christ comes back, we, the church, will be coming back with him to help rule and reign in the kingdom. Remember, he told the disciples they would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. And we, too, are promised, uh, based on our faithfulness during this earthly life, to receive certain rewards and positions of service and authority in the coming kingdom someday. Uh, you notice on the far left there, the church age, uh, uh, which obviously this chart is not drawn to scale, but we are in the midst of that church age that so far has been roughly 2,000 years. Uh, Christ was crucified in 33 AD. The church began 50 days later on the day of uh, Pentecost. And, and, uh, and then uh, here we are roughly 2,000 years later still awaiting his return. And uh, you look through the New Testament, you see this frequent references to eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, the blessed hope to rescue us from this present evil age. And, uh, and then after the rapture, there's some length of time as the world responds uh, to the chaos that ensues and uh, several things uh, potentially happen uh, just prior to the official start of that seven-year uh, tribulation. I don't, put, I don't have those on the chart here, but in my book I detail several of the things such as Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Battle of Gog and Magog, I think uh, most likely takes place during that time. But eventually the Antichrist gains uh, worldwide fame and uh, acknowledgement, and he sort of takes over the one-world system. And uh, at the midpoint of that seven-year period, you'll notice the abomination of desolation right in the middle of the screen there. Jesus talks about this. Daniel the prophet talks about it. And that's when the Antichrist uh, sets himself up as God, demands that everybody worship him, institutes a, a global tracking system, the mark of the beast, and, and uh, basically begins in earnest to persecute and kill Christians, particularly Jews, uh, during that final three and a half years of persecution. But then, of course, Christ comes back and he ushers in the kingdom. The Messianic kingdom uh, begins with Christ's return. It will last forever. The first 1,000 years of it are on the old heavens and old earth uh, in this world as we know it, except it will be uh, better than ever before because Jesus Christ, the King of kings, will be on the throne and he will rule with perfect peace and justice and righteousness with a rod of iron. Uh, and yet even still during that time, there will be eventually unbelievers on the earth. Those who enter the kingdom will all be believers. We talked about that a few weeks ago with the sheep and the goats judgment. I'm going to come back to that again here in a moment. Um, so at the beginning of the kingdom, everyone on earth and their physical bodies will be believers. There will be the church in their glory, in our glorified bodies also participating in the kingdom, as well as Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. We're going to talk about Moses in the worship hour today. They will be there in their glorified bodies, but there will be physical people in their physical bodies that are believers who got saved during the tribulation, endured uh, to the end, and uh, are the ones to whom Jesus says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Uh, but eventually, as people have children, those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Like every human being, they will need to be uh, born again by faith alone in Christ alone. And some will, in fact, place their faith in Christ, not only the Savior of the world, but at that time, the King of the world, the one sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, some won't. Those who don't, by the end of the millennium, will constitute a, a massive army of unbelievers who uh, 
uh, conspire with Satan, who's let out of prison at the end of the thousand years, and uh, in one final battle seeks to overcome God and all that is good and take over this world for himself. But, of course, we know who wins. With a word, Christ casts him into the eternal lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet have been for a thousand years by that time. And uh, then he destroys the old sin-stricken earth with all of its corruption and problems and recreates it in perfect, uh, sinless perfection. And so the Bible thus comes full circle back to from Genesis to Revelation to a pre-fall Edenic state. So we talked about some Old Testament designations. I won't take the time to go through all of these again just for the sake of uh, time, but you can see some of those on the screen. We listed about 20 of them, uh, Old Testament passages that speak of this seven-year period just prior to the establishment uh, of the kingdom. And then we looked at uh, some New Testament passages, and the key ones, of course, are the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21, where Jesus gives the, his teaching just prior to his betrayal in the garden about the end times and explains what the future generation alive on the earth at that time should look for. If they want to know when is he coming, watch for these things. And basically he just outlines the seven-year tribulation. Since that we know that happens right before the second coming, it makes sense when someone says, hey, when are you going to come back and establish your kingdom, that Jesus would say, well, watch for these signs. Watch for these things that... Many of the Old Testament prophets talked about, but it's the book of Revelation details extensively uh, in, ver in chapters really 6 to 18, but 4 to 5 are in Revelation are the setup for that, and then 19 is when Christ comes back in Revelation 19. And so uh, he, he answers that question and gives those signs. So that's a key passage, uh, Olivet Discourse, number one there on, on the screen. Then, of course, number two is the book of Revelation, which is almost exclusively about the tribulation. And then Paul references it a couple of times, gives us some really good information about it in First and Second Thessalonians. Some of the New Testament designations, obviously we talked about the great day of his wrath. And uh, in Revelation 6, at the start of the tribulation, we read, For the great day of his wrath has come. Remember, day there doesn't mean 24-hour day. It's a, it refers to a period of time, the day of the Lord, which is, which is characterized by God's direct intervention in the affairs of mankind. And so, in its broadest sense, the day of the Lord, prophetically, refers to everything from the rapture all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth. But in context, at different times, it can refer to everything from uh, the rapture itself, the second coming itself, the entire seven-year uh, tribulation. And when we read about the great day of the Lord's wrath, it's talking here about the commencement of that seven-year outpouring of God's wrath through the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. And uh, I put this one in here because we're studying Psalm 90 today in our worship hour. And this, uh, of course, since I've been studying the tribulation period as well, it kind of jumped off the screen. But Moses says... In Psalm 90, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. And God's wrath has been boy, uh, building up, uh, you know, simmering beneath the surface, waiting for God's timetable for it to finally overflow. And that's what the tribulation is all about. So I want to go back. This is where we left off last week to the book of Revelation. And... Uh, show you kind of once again how easy it is to outline the book of Revelation. Um, 
Like any book in the Bible, if you take a single verse or certain few verses out of context and try to understand them, it's going to be difficult. But frankly, that's true of any book. You could take any novel, uh, any Tom Clancy book, and randomly open it to a page and pick out two or three sentences, and you won't have a clue what's going on. Because that's not the way books are intended to be read, and that's not the way the Bible is intended to be read. The book of Revelation tells a story. It's the revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis is the Greek word. In English, we, the, tran the transliteration would be apocalypse uh, of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so it really is the most exciting book uh, to read when you read it because it sort of answers all of the questions that humanity has for the last 6,000 years. It brings together all of the answers that we, that we have as we read God's Word. The, the whens and the hows and the whys, they all come together in the book of Revelation. It completes the story. It makes all things right. It leaves nothing unresolved. There are many things unresolved right now. The book of Revelation resolves them. And so it starts out, you can see, I've kind of overlaid the outline of Revelation in blue, the chapters of Revelation, uh, right beneath a rudimentary a timeline of the end times that is very similar to the one I showed you earlier. So we picked it up with the first advent of Christ in Bethlehem uh, back uh, in the uh, first, well, actually in 4 B.C. Uh, is when he was born, but then, of course, his ministry took place in the first century and uh, for three and a half years. Then his uh, betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion and resurrection. And then on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2, the church was founded. And so now we're in the church age. Well, the first uh, five chapters there of Revelation really are prior to the official start of the tribulation. So that's why I put those listed under the church age. Chapter 1 introduces Christ and says, you know, here, here, here is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it gives us an outline of the rest of uh, the book, which is really fascinating because it follows it uh, perfectly. And it says in... Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 1, I'm trying to find the verse here, things that were, things that will be, and things that will uh, come. Uh, yeah, verse 19, write these things which you have seen, these things which are, and these things which will take place after this. That's the words of Christ. Uh, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And so then in chapters 2 and 3, we have Jesus sending a message in the form of a letter to seven churches that existed at the first, late first century. Remember, the book of Revelation was the last book written in the New Testament, written around 95, 96 A.D. And uh, he's writing these churches, to, to these letters to these seven churches. They were literal historical churches. And then, having given the message to those churches, uh, which how cool would it have been to be at one of those churches, and just prior to the last written revelation of God in His self-unveiling to mankind, you get a letter from none other than the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ. But then, just prior to, starting the, 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 to, to telling us about the tribulation and all that's going to take place, we have in chapters 4 and 5 what we call a theodicy, which is just a fancy word that means a justification for what's about to happen. 
uh, a justification for the wrath of God. In other words, uh, what, what, what's about to unfold on the earth is pretty horrific. What gives God the right to do that? And so the first um, description of the wrath of God comes in the form of seven seals. Seven, just picture seven scrolls, each one of them with a new judgment from God. And those, those scrolls are sealed. And someone has to open those seals to commence the outpouring of God's wrath. And chapters 4 and 5 answer the question, who is worthy to do that? Who is worthy to open these seals and to, to bring judgment? And the answer is the Lamb. The Lamb, He is worthy because He was slain and He shed His blood. And then you begin in the, the main section of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way to 18 with some amazing detail, which we're going to get to in the coming weeks. We're going to go blow by blow and talk about the, the things that happen. Uh, but it describes that seven-year period. Now, in black, you see uh, uh, several uh, rows there that constitute supplemental information, or some uh, commentaries will call these, from a literary perspective, interludes. Like, they don't necessarily fall verbatim sequentially, you know, but like the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. They're sequential. You have six seal judgments, and the seventh seal opens up six trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet opens up seven bold judgments, and then the second coming and the battle of Armageddon occur. So, but in the midst of that, God, through the Holy Spirit and through the pen of John the Apostle, gives us other information pertinent to what's going on at that time, such as the 144,000 uh, Jewish witnesses that are tasked with going throughout the world during this seven-year period. Uh, and so let me highlight, this is where we're kind of focused in on at the moment. This is the wrath of God, this seven-year period. But they're tasked with going throughout the world to preach the gospel. And people will come to faith. Uh, at the midpoint, we see this interesting story about you know, the little book. And uh, if you remember, this little scroll symbolizes God's revelation that John was about to set forth. Uh, in, in the, uh, uh, the, the rest of the judgments. And uh, God tells John to do what with that scroll? Anybody remember? Eat it. Eat it. Who said that? Very good. So that's bizarre. Um, and, uh, but that, according to Hebrew prophecy, is, a, is kind of a common symbol of receiving knowledge. To consume something was to understand that knowledge. We see that in the book of Jeremiah 15 and Ezekiel 3 as well. And uh, the angel told John that this revelation that he was about to be given and to record and write down uh, would taste bitter at first, but then he would find it sweet. Well, that's exactly what happens in the rest of Revelation. It, it gets worse and worse until the King of Kings comes back riding on a white uh, horse. Um, so, so that's, you know, the, the two witnesses. We see the persecution of Israel in Revelation 12. We see uh, more details about the beast and the false prophet. In fact, Revelation 13 gives us a great deal of information about the beast and false prophet. And again, who are the beast and the false prophet? The Antichrist and, the, and his, like, like, almost not preacher, like the... 
guy who spreads the message about him gets unpopular? Yep, he de that's definitely one of the things the false prophet does. I prefer to think of it in terms of like president and vice president, especially these days. That's a very helpful analogy. But anyway, uh, no, uh, you know, like think of Batman and Robin or, you know, the president, vice president, you know, second in command, basically. But yeah, he's tasked with economic oversight and several other other things so but the the name for them in revelation as well as in the book of daniel is the beast and then the false prophet is the one who's out there um, doing his bidding uh, and then we see the prelude to the harvest in revelation 14 that's a very uh, just p powerful passage uh, that just shows the wrath of god then chapters 17 to 19 are the end the final 24 to 48 hours of the seven-year period, and it just sets the stage for the Battle of Armageddon and those bold judgments, and then you see the bold judgments, you know, are described in verses 15 to 16, and then the Battle of Armageddon 17 to 19. By 19, Christ has come back. Now, this is where it gets uh, really puzzling for some people, and I've never understood why people would not be premillennial in their understanding because without trying to be too pejorative or personally critical if you can read you should be premillennial <laughs> because revelation 19 no matter how you slice and dice it comes before revelation 20 and revelation 19 christ comes back and revelation 20 is the thousand year reign so unless you do gymnastics with the book of Revelation, which of course is what amillennialists do, they call it the recapitulation view. And in their view, of course, there is no Antichrist, there is no seven-year tribulation, there are no seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, there is no literal earthly reign of Christ, so on and so forth. All of the book of Revelation is one giant metaphor describing the present age. Now, I know that sounds bizarre because I don't, can't fathom how anybody could read what's going on in Revelation and compare Scripture with Scripture and see how it correlates perfectly with what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and what many of the Old Testament prophets described as we looked at in the previous weeks. I don't see how you can possibly come away with that conclusion. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you can. You still can't get around the chronological order of the book of Revelation. And the way they do it is they say, well, you know, the seal judgments are all the church age, and then he starts over again and tells you the church age again with the trumpets, and then he starts over again and tells you about the church age with the uh, bowls, and then he starts over again with the millennium, and it's just recapitulation view, and you get dizzy even thinking about it. But that's not the way uh, any normal, natural, plain, normal reading of the book of Revelation um, would come across, and it's a forced view. The fact of the matter is Christ comes back to inaugurate his kingdom, to set up the earthly reign, to, to have this kingdom that was described so often in the Old Testament, uh, where he, he reigns from a rebuilt temple described in meticulous detail by Ezekiel in nine chapters, chapters 40 to 48. And, uh, and so that's what takes place in the millennium. And then, of course, Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible describe it kind of juxtaposed the millennial phase of the kingdom with the eternal phase of the kingdom, but it's all about the kingdom and ultimately gets into the eternal state. And that, by the way, is why, if you look at that last box there, the eternal state, that is why 
the passage we read in 1 Corinthians 15 says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom because when God destroys the old earth, time, space, and matter shall be no more, and he recreates it in an eternal state that's nothing like this realm of time, space, and matter. There's no night, for example. There's no sea, for example. It's just perpetual eternity, and that uh, flesh and blood cannot live in that environment. That's why we have to be given a glorified body. Now, we will be, uh, in, as will people, uh, well, there will be people in their physical bodies in the millennial phase of the kingdom, because that's still on this old earth. So you still have sunrise, sunset, you still have natural order of things, the way that God created them, and they're getting better. You know, it, it's interesting, um, things started out in, in sinless perfection, and then we messed it up because we sinned, which brought death and destruction into the world. And, and then it's gotten worse and worse and worse because sin is a degenerative disease. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13 that th things will get worse and worse. And then uh, once Christ takes the throne and he's going to reign on the old earth for a thousand years, which is a long time. <laughs> when you think about you know, what was going on even a hundred years ago in this, in this country and how much has changed. And that's just one-tenth of the length of the earthly millennial phase of the kingdom. But during that thousand years, since Christ, the King of Kings, and the omniscient God is on the throne, things will get better. And even under the most ideal conditions, there will still be unbelievers who reject the gospel, reject the free gift of salvation paid for by the blood of Christ, and persist in their unbelief, which is astounding to think that. But um, that's the reason if, you know, if, if, if you're listening to this, or maybe someone watching the video uh, either now or later, and, there, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait because deception is going to get worse and worse. And if the rapture were to happen today, deception will reach unprecedented heights during this tribulation period that we're talking about. And it's going to be even harder to believe the truth during the great uh, deception of the tribulation period. But even during the millennial phase, when Satan is bound up in prison, his influence is largely held in check, uh, even still, people will reject the gospel. It's just amazing to me. So uh, that's the wrath of God. There were several other places in the New Testament where it refers to this idea of the wrath for that seven-year period. For example, going back to Revelation in chapter 15, uh, this is uh, in reference to the bold judgments. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. This is the final seven judgments. For in them the wrath of God is complete. The wrath of God is complete. Now some uh, teachers have mistakenly assumed that the, the wrath of God is limited to the bold judgments based on this passage and some others that they misunderstand. But again, that can't possibly be the case because we, as we already read in Revelation 6, uh, the wrath of God has already come with the, with the seal judgments. In fact, by the end of chapter 6, they are crying out, hide us from the wrath of God. It's everywhere, you know. So no, the wrath of God is not just uh, the bold judgments, but here is another reference to the fact that it is a time of wrath. Revelation 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on earth. And then oh, here's the verse I was looking for. I, I got ahead of myself. At the end of chapter 6, again, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath 
of the Lamb. So this great day of his wrath is also called the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Sometimes it's just called wrath, meaning the prophetic wrath of God. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Remember, salvation does not always mean eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin. In fact, less than 50% of the time, the, word, the Greek word save or salvation, the noun, refers to our eternal salvation from the penalty of sin. Most of the time, it refers to physical deliverance from some kind of danger, harm, sickness, that type of thing. So such is the case here. Uh, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance or rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ from the day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, we see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where the tribulation is referred to as the wrath to come. Uh, Paul says, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, and the, the context here is, we won't be anywhere near it. We won't be part of it. We won't be in it. We won't. Some people say, well, yeah, we're going to go through it, but at some point in the midst of it, he'll get us out of it. That's not at all what, now that may make sense from an English translation, but in the Greek, the prepositions were far more specific. And if he had wanted to say, he delivers us out from the midst of the wrath of God, he could have said that. But that's not what he means here. He's rescuing us from, out away from not ever having entered the wrath of God. And especially when you couple that with the same context in 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath. You know, when we get saved, we pass from death to life. We're no longer under the wrath of God. See, unbelievers are children of wrath. Believers are children of God. And, uh, you know, so a believer can never, ever, ever become a child of wrath again. <clears throat> Now, we may face discipline. We've talked about that in previous weeks in different contexts. Uh, we may face serious consequences for sin in the life of a believer. We may forfeit rewards. We may miss out on God's blessing. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But one thing we can count on, once a child of God, always a child of God. You never can go back to being a child of wrath once you've been rescued from uh, that wrath. So the prophetic wrath is only you know, being poured out on the earth. And it's, uh, now there will be believers alive that are collateral damage and are facing the destruction of the earth all around them, but they themselves will spend eternity in heaven should they be uh, martyred. And then, as in the Old Testament, the New Testament likewise often refers to the tribulation as the day of the Lord. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, you, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Now, sometimes, uh, let's go back to my... Uh, end times chart, just to kind of make a point here. One of the key distinctions between the rapture and the second coming, and we've, we talked about this several months ago when we looked at the rapture and the second coming, but one of the key differences is the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. There, there are no prophetic events that must occur before the rapture. The second coming, by contrast, is by no means imminent. There's a whole host of things that must happen and will happen prior to the second coming. You can see a number of them on the screen right there. You've got the Antichrist signing the peace treaty. You've got the abomination of desolation. Down below, you've got all the judgments of God's wrath, the seal, trumpet, and bullet. All of those precede the second coming. So sometimes people will say, well, how then can the second coming be referred to as coming like a thief in the night? 
Well, remember, Jesus used the same analogy in the Olivet Discourse, talking about his return. And the fact of the matter is, even though uh, in a vacuum we ought to be able to calculate precisely when the second coming will happen, deception is going to be so great during that seven-year period that it will catch many off guard. Remember the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives all of the specific details and signs to look for, and then he, he spends the rest of the Olivet Discourse with one watchfulness warning after another. Remember, he starts with a parable, three analogies, and then another parable, and he keeps saying, be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Why? Because just as the judgment of the flood caught people off guard in Noah's day, the judgment of his return with a sword proceeding out of his mouth will catch many off guard uh, in that day. And so it's not inconsistent. Jesus is not saying that when he says, uh, nor is Paul, that the day of the Lord uh, will come like a uh, thief in the night. He's not saying it's going to come at any moment that it could happen today. What he's saying is when it does come, it's going to catch some people off guard. And indeed it will. Many people will have uh, taken the mark of the beast, bought the lie of the world satanic leader the antichrist and will think that uh things are gonna you know work out and all of a sudden you know christ will come back uh, it's sometimes called this day or at least in first s5 and the new king james here translates it this day uh capitalized because it's referring to this onslaught of god's judgment you are not of the darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief fascinating passage uh, go back and read the first seven or eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 5 one time because it describes how we as believers don't have to fear that day, which is what Paul has been saying in 1 Thessalonians already, that we are not appointed to suffer wrath. So we've got the great day of his wrath, the wrath of God and the Lamb, the wrath, the wrath to come, <clears throat> the day of the Lord, just this day. It's also referred to as an hour of trial in Revelation uh, chapter 3, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Again, same preposition as we looked at before. This is not suggesting that he's going to protect us through it. No, he's going to keep us from ever entering it, uh, which is going to come upon uh, the whole earth. And then uh, the tribulation and, and also the great tribulation, Jesus uses both of those words. That in theological circles has sort of become the phrase that we use to talk about this seven-year period. Uh, as we've seen, there are many, 20 in the Old Testament and, and 10 in the New Testament at least. Uh, but when we talk about the tribulation in a theological sense, that's what we're talking about is this seven-year period. But Jesus uses it in a descriptive sense to describe everything that's going to take place during that seven-year period. So again, going back to the Olivet Discourse, with the teaching of Jesus atop the Mount of Olives, the night he was betrayed, in answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know that it's near? He gives all of these signs, and then he says, and then immediately after the tribulation that I've just described, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming, and he comes back in all of his glory. Uh, in the, earlier in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is talking about all of these signs, he speaks of the great tribulation occurring after the abomination of desolation. So he describes the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God and demand worship. It's called the abomination of desolation. Uh, and that's why the Antichrist is called the desolator. 
Uh, and then he says, after that, then there will be great tribulation. And all he's saying here is that it's going to get worse. Uh, some theologians have turned this phrase great tribulation into a technical term so that they see the term tribulation referring to the whole seven years and great tribulation just the last three and a half years. I'm not sure that's what Jesus intended to convey here. I don't have a problem with it because it's certainly true descriptively that the last three and a half years are going to be greater tribulation than the first three and a half. But we want to be careful about making technical terms when th I don't think that's necessarily what he meant. And then it's called the hour of his judgment. Uh, going back to the book of Revelation, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of his judgment uh, has come. And this, the one speaking here, by the way, is the angel uh, that's uh, the same angel that's giving the everlasting gospel uh, throughout that time to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And then finally, the one that we began with when we looked at the Old Testament designations, that is the birth pangs. Uh, we talked a lot about this at the beginning of this study of the tribulation. And the New Testament likewise uses this phrase. Um, and I'm going to go to the New American Standard here because it translates it consistently. But it's the word birth pangs. All of these things are the beginning of birth pangs. And so I was talking to someone uh, at the uh, funeral this weekend in Texas who's kind of a prophecy buff. My mother-in-law was a big prophecy buff. And... Uh, studied it very extensively, and the persons came up to me and said, you know, oh, we're seeing a lot of birth pangs today, and I didn't have the heart to say, well, no, not really, not technically, we're seeing a setting of the stage, but the birth pangs that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point, but it's a technical term that refers to the beginning of the tribulation. So unless we're in the tribulation, we're not seeing the birth pangs. So just like a woman is, is in normal cases, is pregnant for nine months, and near the end of that gestational period, the birth pangs ensue, and before long, the baby is born. The tribulation is, if you will, is the gestational period for the return of Christ, and it's called the day of the Lord. And the birth pangs will start, and they will intensify, and eventually Christ will come back. That's what the Old Testament prophets talks about, and that's what Jesus talked about. So when you see in Matthew 24 and the other parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21, uh, Jesus beginning his description of the tribulation period by talking about many will come in my name, uh, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and so forth, earthquakes, and there's a big earthquake this weekend in Haiti, right? That's just because... There will be these things in the tribulation, and there are these things now, doesn't mean they're the same thing. Like, similarity does not mean identity, right? So, uh, these, we, we, we want to be careful about the language we use. We're not experiencing birth pangs today, at least not in the prophetic sense of the return of Christ. What we are experiencing is a setting of the stage. If we know, according to the Bible, that there are going to be an intensification of earthquakes during the seven-year tribulation, it makes sense that in the lead-up to that, we're probably going to see uh, many earthquakes beginning to, you know, the earth is shaking and preparing and getting ready for this final cosmic struggle. Uh, remember, the earth is getting old, too. <laughs> you know, um, 
It's not billions or millions of years old like Darwinian atheist eugenics scientists think it is. It's only 6,000 years old according to the biblical teaching. Um, and uh, real science, as my friend Russ Miller says, is a Christian's best friend. If you, if you understand the Bible as the, our starting point, as the revealed truth of God, then science makes perfect sense. When you reject the Bible and you're looking for other solutions, then you end up having millions of years of death and destruction before sin enters the world and so on and so forth. But if you understand the Bible in its plain literal sense, we understand that the earth is 6,000 years old and it's been under the curse of sin for that long and it's, not, it's, it's struggling. It's, getting, it's groaning, Paul tells us in Romans 8. And uh, so in, if you want to use birth pangs in the sense of just a metaphor, that's fine. But that's not the way the Bible uses that metaphor. It's talking about the things that happened during the seven-year tribulation. So we'll, we finished uh, the New Testament designations. Next time we'll get into some purposes of the tribulation and compare some more scripture and see why do we need this seven-year period. I mean, besides that it fulfills prophecy, but how does it fit into God's plan? So let's take a couple of questions, and then we'll... You've been waiting very patiently. What is a prophecy buff? A prophecy buff. So a buff is someone who has an interest in, in things, and uh, it's a hobby of theirs, something that they uh, take great interest in. So I don't even know what the etymology of the word buff is, but that's, that's the Strong, meaning. Strong, maybe? Something buff. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I could see why that would come to your mind, but um, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's what we meant, that a person who's a prophecy buff is just someone who's really interested in prophecy. Good question. Anybody? Yeah. Um, do, you, do, you think, do you think that, that another sign of the times is, is all the locusts that are in in like Africa, do you think do you think that will be causing most of the famine? Do you think most of the locusts will just mostly be in Africa and Asia, or do you think they're going to be all over the place? That's a good question. I mean, we've certainly for centuries had on record examples of locust, massive locust uh, kills and stuff on crops. So it's certainly not unprecedented. Uh, every time something like that happens, we do tend to, especially if we know the Bible, we do tend to wonder: Is this that? Um, as far as the geography of where the locust plagues will be, it's hard to say. The description of the book of Revelation is definitely global and worldwide, and it's going to impact everybody. But we don't know exactly what that will look like. The thing that I'm more concerned about, I, I, we were walking our uh, granddaughter yesterday, last night, and uh, saw a beetle cross the sidewalk right in front of us, and it occurred to me, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen a beetle or an insect. And that's because, as, as we've talked about in my Spirit of the Antichrist series, Insects are dying off massively, massively for the ever since they started spraying the stuff in the sky. So we just don't see as many insects as we. The bee population is dying, the insect population is dying, and I just think it's one more uh, example of what some people call the near-term planetary omnicide. That that this worth this world is just not going to hang on much longer, uh, unless the Lord wants it to. The Lord's sovereign, and He can take as long as He wants. But it just seems like. With, with this massive amounts of geoengineering and chemical ice nucleation and you know, stratospheric aerosol spraying and the solar radiation management that they're doing that it's just we're in where it can't be around much longer but so that's what I that's my two cents worth about the insects it's like where are they I mean they're here but they're not like they used to be 
All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a break. Uh, for those of you live streaming, uh, we will come back on at around 10.25, 10.30, somewhere in there, give or take 5, 10 minutes. Uh, uh, and for those of you here, we'll start our service at 10 o'clock.